0: Our reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased.
1: Well, thank you, Hazel. And uh, good morning to all of you. And I'll pray as we begin. Psalm 119 says these words. Turn my heart towards your statutes. And not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Father, we do confess that our eyes and our hearts are so often consumed by what is worthless. And so we pray this morning as we look at your word, you would show us what is of immense worth that we might worship you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, just recently, a website featured an article in which it attempted to list the top 30 things that people in our world today love. And the website claims, if you are human, the chances are you will love these things. I wonder if you agree. Here are some of them. Beaches, the Beatles, clothes, corgi, Fireworks, flowers, grandparents, ice cream, money, movies, music, noodles, pillows, pizza, social media, sport, sugar, and the sun. That is the spherical star in our solar system, not the newspaper. This is what we love. And I wonder what that says about us. What do our passions reveal about us? What do we like? In 1677, the Scottish pastor Henry Skoogel wrote his famous book entitled The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And he says this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. That is, it's possible to measure someone's greatness by what they love. We can tell a lot about someone by what gets them excited So we often get to know people by asking them this kind of question once we get over the basics of what's your name and where do you live? We might ask, well, what do you love? What do you get excited about? What thrills you? In social networking, we want to know what people's likes are, what they approve, what they value. This gets us to the heart of a person. Well, it's certainly true of human beings and it's also true of God. In today's passage, we get an insight into what God really loves into what gets God excited, into what pleases him. So I wonder if you've ever asked that question before, what does God love? And it's really astonishing because what, once we see what God loves, it will help us to see what is of ultimate value. It will help us to see how misdirected our love so often is. And it will help us to know how to live. Because we'll know what pleases God. If you were here last week, you'll know we began a series looking at Matthew chapter 3 and 4. Matthew is helping us to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And we saw that Jesus' coming happens in two stages. He has come, but is still to come. So we find ourselves in a similar position to Matthew's original hearers. We are those who await the coming of Christ. Last week we thought about his mission. Jesus will come to save and to judge So we must repent. And today we're looking at Jesus' public unveiling, his baptism. It's a bit like the World Cup opening ceremony, or the book signing, the drawing back of the curtains, the cutting of the ribbon. His baptism is his public unveiling. And what is so significant is that right at the start, the Almighty God gives us his verdict of Jesus' If we weren't quite sure what to make of Jesus, God gives us his judgment. He tells us who he is and what he thinks of him. And we see in God's public declaration, his absolute approval of Jesus. Listen to the voice that was from heaven. Have a look at verse 17 in your Bibles. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased Jesus is God's beloved son. And he says, look, look at Jesus. See who he is. See what he's come to do. See what I think of him. You see, God wants us today to understand his unceasing unquenchable love for his son. And so the question we need to think about this morning is this. Why? Why does the father love the son like this? What is it about Jesus that gets God so excited? And if today we do not feel this way about Jesus, perhaps the thought of loving Jesus seems a bit bizarre, we've got to ask, what is it that we've missed out? What what is it that we've not grasped? What have we not understood? Because the answer to this question, why does the Father love the Son, will help us understand who Jesus is and how we should respond to him today. So why does the father love the son? Two reasons from today's passage. The first is this, because of the son's costly obedience. And the second, because of the son's sacrificial service. So number one, because of the son's costly obedience. The narrative starts with the arrival of Jesus into the wilderness by the Jordan River. And what is an immediate surprise is that unlike the other religious leaders, Jesus comes to John not to check him out, but for baptism. And that is odd, isn't it? It is strange. It's stranger even than John's clothes and his diet. See, what is going on? Just think about it. Jesus is the Messiah. He's come to establish the kingdom of heaven. So why is he getting baptized? Baptism is a picture of a sinner being cleansed. But Jesus isn't a sinner. He's come to bring cleansing, not be cleansed, to bring salvation, not be saved. So so why is he getting baptized? This is a little bit like Beethoven coming to me and asking for a piano lesson. Or Lionel Messi coming and asking for help with his free kicks. Or Stephen Hawking asking for tuition in GCC physics. It's mad. What's going on? Why is Jesus getting baptised? Well, if that's what we're thinking, then we're in good company, because John the Baptist thinks the same. Have a look at verse 14. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? See, John recognises to some extent that he is in the presence of greatness. He didn't want to baptise the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. He doesn't want to baptise Jesus, though, because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. And yet, Jesus insists. He says, verse 15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. So here we have the answer, straightforward. This is why Jesus is baptised, because he wants to fulfil all righteousness. That's what he's come to do. And yet we're probably still thinking, well, what do you mean, Jesus? John seems to be happy with the explanation, but it's not immediately obvious to us. Well, I think it's along these lines, to fulfil, in Matthew's Gospel especially, speaks of keeping the Old Testament promises of God. So Jesus is doing what God has said he will do in the Old Testament, to fulfil keeping God's promise. Righteousness often refers to God's moral standards, but more widely refers to God's commitment to establish right order in this world. He has a plan to put things right, to remake this broken world, to restore us to God. Last week we saw that would involve both salvation and judgment. And that is to say, when we see the pain in this world, when we hear from John about what's going on in Juba, let us not forget God is going to put things right. That is his plan, to establish his kingdom, to save a people for himself, to bring righteousness, God's salvation, putting all things right. So for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness is to bring about God's promised salvation. That is why he's come. But the question remains, what has baptism got to do with that? How does this act, getting baptised, fulfill all righteousness. How does it bring about God's promised salvation? Well, it was in 1863 that a Catholic priest called Father Joseph Damien arrived in Hawaii. He arrived to help on a leper colony. He was inspired by the example of Jesus and he noticed the people there had been banished without friends, without family, with any sort of help at all. Their lives were desperate and lonely. Others forgot about these lepers but not Father Damien. He went to live among them. He did all he could. He buried the dead, cleaned the water system, built them homes. He set up a school, a hospital, two church buildings. He lived among them and he loved them. And then, in 1885, 20 years after he'd first been with them, the lepers learned the full extent of his love. They were sat in church one Sunday morning as Father Damien stood up to preach and they could not believe their ears. They were stunned when he began his sermon with these words, we lepers, for he too had caught the disease. You see, when Jesus is getting baptized, what is he doing? Friends, he is identifying with sinners. He is identifying with us. He's standing with us. He's becoming like us. But unlike Father Damien, he's doing it in order to save us. Because he's not just taking on sin with us. He's taking on our sin for us. You see, God cannot simply ignore sin. If he's going to forgive us, he's got to deal with it. And for him to do that, he has got to enter into our humanity. He's got to die to take the punishment. Because the wages of sin is death. So right at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is showing us his hand. He's showing us what he's all about. He has come to identify with sinners. He's come to stand in our place, and one day he will take our sin. Isn't it encouraging for us that Jesus is determined to do this? See, John thinks it's mad that he's getting baptized, but Jesus insists The crowd later will want to crown him, but Jesus wants the cross. This is not coercion. He's willing to do it. He's determined. And here at his baptism, we have a foreshadowing of what he will one day do at the cross. He's not getting baptised for his own sin. He's getting baptised because he will one day take on ours. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, at his baptism, At the end of the cross, Jesus stands there in our place, identifying with sinners. Because this is how he will save. This is how he will fulfill all righteousness. So can we begin to see why the Father loves the Son? It's because of his costly obedience. The Father knows exactly what it took For Jesus to do this. Just think. Jesus left the comfort of heaven. He left the praise of angels, the intimacy of his father. He emptied himself. He gave up many of his divine privileges. He gave up many of the benefits of his divine nature. That is, he became like us. Limited in time, limited in space, limited in understanding. He left a world of love and happiness. He entered a world of sin. And sadness: he was hungry, thirsty, tired, lonely, misunderstood, abandoned, rejected, hated and then killed. Friends, do we grasp what it meant for Jesus to obey the Father? We often speak a lot about grace, the free gift of salvation. We cannot earn God's favor by our righteous deeds, simply receive the free gift of forgiveness. But let us not think it was free. It was not free. It cost the world. It is not cheap grace. It is costly grace. It took the greatest act of obedience that we have ever seen. The greatest act in the history of mankind. The obedience of the Son showed to the Father in coming to identify with sinners. And so no wonder the Father says, Look, Look at Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And today we are called to worship him, to praise him, to treasure him. There is none like Jesus, the beloved son of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're just thinking about these things, please understand that Jesus came to bring salvation. The Father sent him because the Father loves sinners. He loves it when sinners come back to him. And Jesus came because he was willing. He hung on the cross. He took on sin. He paid for it. And he offers you today the forgiveness of sins. He offers you rest, friendship with God. And he says to you, come. Come. Come, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And if we belong to Jesus, the most astonishing thing is that God will say of us, this is my son. This is my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Not because we deserved it, but because Jesus has taken our sin. Jesus did this because it was the Father's will. Jesus will say later on, I have not come down from heaven to do my will, the will of the one who sent me. That is why the Father loves the Son. And surely if we grasp this, then we too will share this love. This love for Jesus will be our love. In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle, the Victorian Bishop of Liverpool, tells the story of an old Welsh lady. This lady would walk several miles every single Sunday to hear an Englishman preach the gospel. But it was soon discovered that she didn't understand hardly a word of what he said. She didn't speak English. And yet she persisted week by week, month by month, year by year, to hear this man preach. And so understandably she was once asked, well, why? (laughs) Why do you travel so far when you can hardly understand a word he says? And she said, though she didn't understand much of what he said, this preacher used the name of Jesus in his sermons more than anyone else she knew. She didn't understand much, but she understood that. And she just loved to hear his name. So the the question this morning for us is, do we share the Father's love? Do we share his passion for his Son, his love for Jesus? He obeys the Father perfectly. We're called to look and worship Jesus But in seeing what God values, we are also called to follow in his footsteps. On Saturdays, I tend to buy the newspaper, and there's always a magazine in which some celebrity is pictured on the front page and interviewed on the inside. I try and read it because I'm often accused of being a bit of a cultural dinosaur, not very up-to-date with popular culture, so it's my attempt to try and make some steps in that direction. And I've often noticed that on the front page there's a phrase or a slogan or something which describes the characteristics of the person inside. And there are certain characteristics which appear time and time again. Attitudes that as a society we cherish. Things like these. Rebel, radical, non-conformist, free spirit, addict, hedonist, and so on. Because in theory we love the person who doesn't have any regard for authority. The rebel without a cause. But just imagine... One week, the newspaper decides to interview a teenager who obeys their parents perfectly. Squeaky clean, probably spotty. And the words on the front page are these. Obedient, submissive, respectful, compliant, great personal cost. No one would read that. It's so boring. Because our culture is not one in which obedience is prized. It's not one in which cost is prized. And yet we are encouraged We are encouraged as a society to value personal freedom, personal comfort above all else. And yet what we see here is that our God loves and cherishes costly obedience. And if we show the heart of God, while our world prizes comfort and security, we will want to be known for our costly obedience and the way that we demonstrate that is in human relationships it's no wonder is it that the new testament goes on to say children obey your parents wives submit to your husbands slaves or we might say workers or master, um, obey your employers church members obey your leaders citizens submit to the governing authorities because god loves and cherishes costly obedience it's not easy it's costly it's costly to pursue sexual purity. It's costly to pursue faithfulness in marriage. It's costly to be generous financially. It's costly to, to, to forgive those who offend us. It's costly to make a stand as a Christian at work. It will be costly when we commit time to serving at church week by week. It will be costly when members of our church leave this city and this country to serve God overseas, like Jonathan Greenaway. It'll be costly for us to give more money to see the gospel flourish in East Oxford and beyond. It'll be costly for us to make a stand on the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics and the family. But let us remember, our God loves costly obedience. So if you're faced with a choice this week, whether to obey or not, whether to keep on obeying or not, whatever the cost, remember, God loves it when we do. He delights in it, because we're acting just like his son, whom he loves. That's the first reason the father loves the son, because of the son's costly obedience. But you might just be thinking, well, what is it about God? Is he a bit egotistical? Does he just like it when people do what he says? Is he like a smug parent? I love it when my children obey me, particularly in public. Is that what's going on? Well, the answer is no, because as we've already seen and seen more clearly, the Father's will is always for the good of his people. We see that Jesus, in his obedience, though costly, was an act of service to other people. And so the second reason the Father loves the Son is because of the Son's sacrificial service. Jesus is baptised. He then stands up out of the water, and at this moment heaven is opened. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, in the form of a dove. A light shines on Jesus, there's a voice from heaven, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Now if you know the Old Testament, then this saying of God may well ring a bell, or perhaps a couple of bells, because this pronouncement is a combination of two similar pronouncements in the Old Testament. One from Psalm 2, the other from Isaiah 42. And they help us understand what God wants us to understand about Jesus They each speak of a promised person, a king and a servant. And what we see is that God is saying that Jesus fulfills them both. He is that king and he is that servant. So just listen to this from Psalm 2. The king and the psalm says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This psalm is about the coronation of God's king. God declares this king to be his son. He's the one who will rule in his place. Now, the great King David, we know, was promised that one of his descendants would be God's greatest king of all. He would reign on God's throne, not just in Israel, but over the whole world, not just um, for his lifetime, but for eternity. And so here at Jesus' baptism, God is saying that this promised king, this Christ, this Messiah, is Jesus, his beloved son. But what kind of king is he? We'll hear this from Isaiah 42, and Daniel read this earlier. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. So as I hear speaks of the servant of God, he's chosen by God, he delights God, he's indwelt by his spirit, he brings justice, he brings salvation to the ends of the earth, he's almighty. And yet at the same time, he's gentle. When a wick is smouldering, about to die out, he will gently blow on it so that it relights. When a reed is bent and about to break, he will tenderly hold it till it heals. And what will the servant do? Well, Isaiah tells us he will suffer. We know this in chapter 53 where there is this glorious description of how the servant gives up his life. He'll do it for his people. He will carry our sorrows. He will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, bear the sins of many. He will bring his people peace. So when the father declares Jesus to be his beloved son, we're supposed to see he is the great king, the Christ, and the suffering servant. So what is it that delights the father, that brings him such joy? It is the son's sacrificial service. He's the king who rules by giving up his life. That is the reason the father delights the son in the son. And Jesus will go on to say, the reason the father loves me is that I lay down my life. It's true, of course, the father has eternally Love the Son, but there is something specific about the sin bearing mission of Jesus that brings the Father such joy. Because the Father loves sinners. Because the Father loves to welcome us back. And that is why the Father has a special and unique love for Jesus. Because of the Son's sacrificial service. As a parent, it is, of course, Normal to have deep affection for your own children. You love them no matter what. But there are certain things that do bring particular delight. One of the interesting things about my experience having two children is seeing the way they relate. Of course, this can be a bit tricky. It's probably fair to say there are times when Joshua, my son, is not always that gentle with Molly, my daughter. But just occasionally he can look after her quite well. And uh, if you know my daughter, you know that she has an interesting way of moving around. Some of you do. She likes to shuffle. And so it's slightly unfortunate that in our house, our stairs are too narrow to have a stair gate. And for some reason, when Molly is upstairs, the one place she always wants to go is the top of the stairs and down. So the other day, I was looking after them, responsible father, and uh, I decided to leave them upstairs on their own just to go and get something. And I came back, and I found Joshua at the top of the stairs, about three steps from the top, back to me, lunging forward at full length, holding Molly, from stopping having going down, saying, Molly, Molly, stop. Now, it was, a, it was a proud moment for me. I was slightly relieved. <laughs> but it was a beautiful act of service for his discomfort and her pleasure. There are certain things that do bring a parent particular delight. And you see, at Jesus' baptism, what we see is that Jesus is not praised here for his power, though he could calm the storm. He's not praised here for his knowledge, though he's had... Though he, he impressed scholars from a young age. He's not praised for his riches, though no, he's had riches from eternity. No, Jesus is praised for his sacrificial service. That is what brings the Father such joy. This is the greatest act of love our world has ever seen. That is why the Father loves him. I mean, don't you just love Jesus? Don't you want to love him more? Isn't he so unlike us? His obedience? His sacrifice? And again, the challenge for us this morning is this, do we share the Father's love? Do we share his passion? Do we cherish Jesus? Or do we think, well, I've heard that one before? We are called today to see something that is of immense worth. The Father says, look, look at my son, my beloved son. It was in uh, 2009 that James Howells, an IT worker from Wales, bought a hard drive And on this hard drive, it contains 7,500 bitcoins. Now, for those who don't know, I'm told a bitcoin is internet currency. And when he bought the drive, he bought it for almost nothing. But last summer, forgetting what was on it, forgetting it had any bitcoins on it, having had it unused in his drawer for three years, he threw it away. He didn't think anything of it. He hadn't backed it up. Forgot all about it. That was... Until a few months later, he remembered what was on it. And he remembered that he'd made quite a serious mistake. Because he discovered that the value of Bitcoins had changed. Just a little bit. The Bitcoins that he had were now worth four million pounds. Error. He had something of immense worth. But he didn't see it. And friends, we are called this morning to see something of immense worth. We are called... To lift our eyes off the idols of our day, beyond sex, beyond money, beyond power, beyond sport, to see what is of eternal value. Because in heaven, we Christians will get excited about one thing, that the song we will sing is this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. We will praise Jesus for eternity. We will not grow tired of it. And God is calling us today to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is of more value than anything else we know, anything else this world has to offer because of his sacrificial service. So will we see what he's done? Will we worship him for what he's done? Because a Christian is not someone who simply believes these things. No, a Christian is someone who deep down in our heart of hearts, we delight in them more than anything else. No doubt we don't do it perfectly, we long for the day when we will. But that is a Christian, someone who delights in Jesus. Like that Welsh lady, we delight to hear the name of our Saviour. Again, this is a great challenge to our cultural thinking. Our society values power, not weakness. Freedom, not sacrifice. Lust, not love. Entertainment, not service. Self, not others. But God, our God, delights in sacrificial service. He loves it in Jesus, and he loves it when he sees it in us. He loves it when parents give up so much day after day for their children. He loves it when the Christian forgoes the job promotion to have time to serve family and church. He loves it when the Christian gives up spare time again and again to look after elderly parents. He loves it when we open up our homes and invite those who can't have us back. He loves it when we invest in the poor, the foreigner, the marginalized. He loves it when we invest in the non-Christian to share the gospel with them. He loves it when we invest in the younger Christian to encourage them. He loves it when the elderly work hard to pray for the younger members. He loves it when the younger members take an interest in the elderly. He loves it when we commit ourselves, week by week, whether we feel like it or not, to God's people, to encourage them to love and give deeds. He loves it. Our God loves our sacrificial service. We may think that no one sees it, that it doesn't have any impact. But God tells us he loves it. He loves our sacrificial service. So as we close, let us pray this morning that the Lord will help us to see the worth of Jesus. The Lord will help us to reorder our loves to see what is of true and eternal value. Let us pray we would worship Jesus and be those who prize costly obedience and sacrificial service. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. We praise you for his costly obedience. We praise you for his sacrificial service. We praise you that he is not like us. We praise you that we can be called children of God. And so we confess our view of him is often far too small. Our hearts are so often unmoved. Help us, we pray, to worship him for here he is. For his sake. Amen.